This is information not being reported by anyone else. You want the scoop? Here it is with Darren Doogie Wolfson. Even if Target Center is still working through the kinks, they still have a ways to go when it comes to entering the arena, concessions. Long way to go with renovated Target Center. There is still excitement, a buzz, a genuine feeling that the Wolves can have a very successful year, that after 13 consecutive years of missing the playoffs, they will be back in the postseason. All that really matters is they are off to a 2-1 and start, an impressive three-game start to the season. Maybe not so impressive when you lose to the Spurs, at least the way they did, but then you rebound. You beat Utah, you beat Oklahoma City, very talented Oklahoma City, on its home court on Sunday night. A big reason why they won Friday against Utah will be the first guest of the Scoop Podcast, episode 104, Jamal Crawford. I promised Jamal I wouldn't bug him too much over the course of the season, but after his heroics on Friday, I figured we had to have him on again, even though it's a second consecutive week. But he's such a great conversationalist, and considering the way he won that game for the Wolves, I had to track him down. So we'll get to Jamal in just a second, but first, some love for Vine Park Brewing. Vinepark.com online in St. Paul, West 7th Street, between 35E and downtown St. Paul. They've been around for 22 years. You don't make it that long without a really good-tasting beer. They have it. They will have the flavor that you like. Swing in, grab a growler. Or if you want, you can go in, make your own beer, make your own wine on their equipment with their help. Or for $7, you take a tour, you watch them make the beer, then you get some Heggie's Pizza, you get a flight or a pint. I'm telling you, for 7 bucks, that's a really good deal. If you are a beer aficionado, if you're into the local beer scene, you need to check out Vine Park Brewing. The website for more information is vinepark.com. All right, let's get to Jamal. Jamal, a lot of us have said... And I'm not quite sure the Wolves team of last year, a couple years ago, wins that game Friday, wins the game Sunday against Oklahoma City. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not true. But how much fun was it playing in those two games? You know, just those games coming down to the final seconds. Heck, your heroics on Friday. How much fun were those two games? Oh, both of them. It's always fun to be in those type of environments, and we were able to experience two totally different environments. Obviously, the first one, being at home and in feeling the energy of that crowd as soon as we ran out. You know, as soon as we ran on the court, the excitement they provided for us was much needed. And then being on the opposite end, being on the road, having to win a tough, tough game with the crowd all against us. So both of them were really, really fun for different reasons, but uh, we were able to come out of victorious with both of them. Let's analyze both. Let's actually go sequentially. Let's actually start with the Spurs game. What okay. went wrong against the Spurs? I mean – Murray had his way. Somebody you know well, by the way. We can get into your relationship with Murray. But he had his way with Teague. Was it just on-ball defense? What else was going on in the loss to the Spurs? For us, I think it was a little bit self-inflicted. Uh, I don't think it was any one thing. I just think for us, you know, we kind of controlled our own destiny at that point. And that was our first time kind of being in that situation uh, in a meaningful game. You know, we had a few preseason games, but to go through it like that and, uh, you know, have to kind of figure out where we're going, what we're looking for, the timing. Uh, the chemistry of being in those situations uh, didn't really work for us that particular night. But then the next two nights, which was Friday and Sunday, being up in the fourth quarter, then being down at a point, you know, and having to find a way to win, we did it on Friday and Sunday. We were able to come through. I mean, I guess one specific point when you talk about timing, I mean, I think about Friday night, there was one play where Carl Anthony Towns is rolling. You throw him the pass. He gets hung up. Maybe he tripped. Looked like he struggled there. It ended up being a turnover. Maybe it's just something simple like that when you talk about timing that you just haven't played with Cat all that much. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Plays like that. And, and that's going to happen, you know, because he may be used to something 
a certain way, and I may be some a certain other way, but we'll figure it out, and that's what it's about. And you know, you want to be heading your best later in the season. For us, just kind of starting the season, we're kind of working out those kinks and and figuring things out on the fly, so to speak. But uh, you know, our intentions are both right, so I'm good with it. I mean, you certainly figured it out on Friday. I mean, without you, Jamal, I mean, you can be humble here in this conversation, but I'll give you all the credit. Without you, Jamal, you guys don't win. You single-handedly won that game for the Wolves with those 17 points in the fourth quarter. No, no, no. Team effort. I know, you know, and I understand where you're coming from. I really do because, you know, when you're watching the game, you see certain moments in the game where things can kind of go either way. But there's so many little things that go into it, you know, whether it be a pick here, a pass here, or a play call by Tibbs, which was great with the game-winning shot. He called a play that we've never even uh, practiced before, you know, but he hmm. came out with one of his <laughs> a thousand plays he has and called at the right time, and he saw something on that play, and I had the easy part of just finishing the shot, but Teague made a heck of a pass. Uh, Carl was able to occupy his man's time, and I had just enough space. Are you sure it was an easy shot for you? You said you didn't see the basket. I didn't. Uh, when I when I left my feet, I saw it, but then at that point, Cephalosha put his hand up in my face, and I couldn't see it. And then when I, you know, I kind of tripped at the end of it, and I just saw, I was looking at the net, and I was like, please, just go through. And it went through. I held my follow through the whole time, and yeah, it's just muscle memory at that point. Yeah, I mean, I imagine you have taken that exact shot, I mean, tens of thousands, thousands of times. Of times. Yeah. Going back yeah. to, you know, whether it's junior high, high school, I mean, you could probably put a blindfold on and make that shot a handful of times. <laughs> well, I probably need a thousand shots to make it a handful of times. But, yeah, I, I practice those shots. I don't take shots. I don't practice. You know, so for me, I'm comfortable pretty much shooting anywhere. Uh, because I've shot that shot so many times, that particular shot, whatever it might be. And for us that night as a team, it paid off for us. What's it like being in that zone when you just know, okay, you know, I'm going to throw it up there and there's a good chance the ball's going in? It's an unbelievable feeling. It takes the thought out. You're not thinking like, hey, my feet are set or, hey, there's a defender here. You're just looking for space. And when you see that space, you feel like, hey, as soon as I let it go, it's going in. You know, and it's really, really cool to to go through those things because – uh, your teammates can sense it. You know, obviously, coach is sensing it. He's calling the plays. The crowd can sense it, and it kind of unites everybody. Everybody's in it together. You know, for the next moment. All right, Sunday night in Oklahoma City, you guys were up what double digits in the first half, double digits to start the fourth quarter. Maybe you guys should have won that game comfortably, but I guess when they've got Ross, they've got Mello, they've got Paul George. There's nothing about winning against Oklahoma City that's comfortable. Not at all, because all those guys have individually carried games, uh, you know, for teams they've been on. And, and so they've all done it, you know, and then they have three weapons. As you saw, Paul George may got going and hit a couple shots in the fourth. Russ started to really come on strong the last couple minutes, and then Melo uh, had the potential game winner until Wiggs just really just bailed us out with a heck of a shot. So, you know, you have guys like that, it's always going to be a little bit tougher. It's never going to be easy to put them away, but we found a way to do it. And, and you know, there's already uh, growth in our team. I mean, I thought that was incredible shot-making by Russ. I thought a couple of those threes, there was one where Jimmy Butler had no reason to contest the shot. He's five feet behind the three-point line. He makes it. The one to tie it late was an incredible shot. Sometimes you just tip your hat and say, wow, that was incredible shot-making. Yeah, and that's why he was the MVP. You know, he did it last year. He's done it in his career, uh, and he's comfortable in those positions. You almost are more shocked when it doesn't go in. So, you know, the ball kind of finds its way home, so to speak, and, and he did it again last night. Did you get the sense through team bonding, you know, training camp, preseason, that Andrew Wiggins was the kind of guy, kind of player that 
that wants the ball in those clutch situations, or did you learn something about Wiggins when he hit the game winner on Sunday? No, I kind of learned that. I really did. Uh, not just Sunday, but through camp. I, you know, I wasn't. I was watching uh, Wolves games. I watched the league, but I didn't know w- Wiggs was this good. He's really, really good. He is. He basketball is very easy for him. You know, and he puts a lot of work in, so his he's going to reach his potential. You know, he's not even close. He's 22, 23 years old, 21 maybe, so young. You know, and to watch him just get better and better, even as camp has went along from the first practice till now, you know, it's been fun. You know, and I'm excited about our whole team's journey and where we're going. Do you guys have a play X? Is that what Tibbs was doing? A lot of people think Tibbs was signaling for a timeout, but to me, Jamal, Tibbs is far too smart, you know, to to forget that, that he didn't have any timeouts. I don't think he was signaling for a timeout. I think that was play X, but you would know better than me. Was that play X for Wiggins? Yeah, we actually have play set up for that specific situation and we actually went over uh those plays we do it every shoot around we went over them that shoot around the day of the game you know and Tibbs always has special situation stuff uh, queued up and ready to go and he he called that play and Taj had great patience you know it, that's part of the, the play as well and uh it worked to perfection Carl set a great screen and it just worked to perfection was it a great screen I thought he was moving <laughs> well I think in that situation the last seconds of the game if you're a ref, I think it's tough to call it a call like that that can decide a game. You know what I mean? Like, Agreed. even if it was up on the opposite end of the spectrum, you don't want to decide a game like that. You know, you want the guy to make the shot or miss the shot, and that's that's what happened. I mean, that's the sticky wicket. I mean, do you want them to call the game like they called it in the first, you know, whatever it is, 44, 45 minutes, the first at least, you know, three quarters by the letter of the law, by the book? Or do you want yeah, them in that situation tougher. to give you the freedom Let's see if the shot goes or doesn't go. I'm with you. I like them to say, go ahead and play it out. Let's see if the shot goes or doesn't go. Yeah, the players, I think, decide the game. You know, in the fourth quarter, they call things. Uh, sometimes they let more things go because they know guys will be more aggressive. The intensity picks up in the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, so I, I think they just let the players decide it in that, in that one situation. Has Tibbs amazed you with his with his offensive acumen? I mean, you know, drawing up these plays, you know, being on top of things. At the end of games, I mean, did you know that Tibbs was this good of an offensive coach? No, I knew he was that good of an offensive coach. He just amazed me overall as a coach. Just the things he sees and how prepared he is, how detailed he is. You know, he doesn't panic when things go bad. You know, all three games that we've played so far, we had to lead in the fourth quarter and lost it at some point. And we've won two of the three, but we've, he's never panicked. You know, he just tells us that he's very calm in the huddles. Obviously, he's very intense, but he's very, very calm and I think we take the personality of our, of our coach when, you know, things don't always go like we, we plan them. We calm down, we breathe, and then we figure it out. Are you playing about the minutes you thought? Is it just too small a sample size to know, you know, other yeah, games it might be more, size. other games it might be less? Yeah, it's just too small right now. I mean, I played 24 the first game, and I played 20, and I played 16. So I have no idea right now. You know, I think we're all kind of figuring it out. and just kind of going, playing it by ear. But, you know, for me, I'm capable of playing – 30 minutes, I'm capable of playing, you know, 16, whatever it might be. I'm just here to help win. I'll leave you after a quickie. Deontay Murray of San Antonio, what is your yeah. relationship with him, Jamal? And and how many guys do you consider, you know, are you the big brother to? That you have these guys that, yeah. that they're your yeah. little brothers, the Zach Levines of the world, Murray, yeah, others. a lot. Isaiah Thomas, Brandon Roy, uh, Nate Robinson, Will Conroy, uh, Peyton Siva. There's so many guys. You know, obviously, DeJounte Murray. Zach, as you mentioned, there's so many different guys, especially from my area. But, uh, you know, DeJounte is really special to me because I've 
I've known him since he was in sixth grade. You know, so maybe out of all the guys, he was the youngest one uh, to actually, you know, start working with me and start uh, me kind of mentoring. You know, so for him, I'm just really, really happy for him because knowing some of the hardships he went through to get to this point is nothing short of amazing. So I'm just really happy for him. Did you have to talk to gang members to tell them to leave him alone? No, 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 no. I just, you know, with him, I just wanted to keep him close to me. Okay. The whole thing was just him keeping him close to me, and, I, and that's what I wanted to do from seeing how, you know, a pro worked, how, what it took to get the pros on and off the court, just really getting things in order, you know, off the court and on the court as well, just seeing how a professional does it. And I saw that he had a chance to do it, and I just wanted to support him anywhere I could. Have you ever done that, though, reached out to maybe those around a certain guy, one of those guys that you just mentioned where you knew the support system maybe wasn't there, that, that you wanted to tell those guys, hey, just leave this guy alone, let me take care of him? Well, I mean, honestly, the – People usually around them are trust me, you know, because I've known mm-hmm. you know, uncles or brothers or parents, whatever it might be, and they know I have no ill intention, and I, I don't want anything for the kid but to be successful. So for me, you know, I'm just trying to do my small part of, of giving the knowledge that I know and helping as much as I can and be a support system as much as I can, uh, whether it be me being a soundboard for advice or wanting to work out or whatever it might be. You know, I'm just showing them the way. So, uh, you know, I'll talk to whoever I have to talk to, whoever that might be, whether, like I said, parents or whoever, but usually those people, uh, the adults in the life, you know, they trust me, so it's worked out well. And I suppose doing those sorts of things, Jamal, I mean, as good as winning sixth man of the year three times is, all the success you've had, I suppose that being your legacy, helping out so many others probably means the most to you. No, it absolutely does. And I used to say when I was a kid that being a professional athlete was like my dream, but Actually, uh, being in the NBA and being able to have the effect on people, especially kids, has been the absolute best thing about it. So, yeah, you're right. Well-spoken as always, Jamal. I told you I wouldn't bug you too much during the season, but after your heroics on Friday, I had to bug you this week. (laughs) I'm here. I'm here for you. So, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. Absolutely, Jamal. I'll be in touch. Thanks. Okay. I always appreciate how accessible Jamal Crawford is. If you haven't read the recent feature on him, Sports Illustrated, SI.com, you need to. The man has a heart of gold as a person. He is A+. Forget all the accolades, all the personal accomplishments on the court. Everything he has done off the court is really who Jamal Crawford is. It's one heck of a legacy. He is as good as it gets. Jamal Crawford of the Wolves. By the way, Tom Thibodeau came out on Tuesday morning. He admitted he did actually signal for a timeout, so he was out of timeouts. Now, my belief was... The way he screams, there was an official right there. If he really wanted to time out, he would have screamed for one. But he actually signaled for one. Then it looks like one of the assistants, maybe Andy Greer, runs over. Must have told Tibbs, hey, don't do that. Don't call a timeout. So anyway, the officials didn't see it. So the Wolves got away with calling a timeout when they were out of timeouts. Then the illegal screen, Carl Anthony Towns on Paul George. But hey, it evens out over the course of a year. I'm with Jamal Crawford. I have no problem if the officials swallow their whistles at the end of games. Let the players decide the outcome. And in this case, Andrew Wiggins, the buzzer beater, the Wolves over 500. They were never over 500 last year. So already this year, accomplishing something they didn't do last year. I should have some time on Thursday, Thursday, to do a news and notes podcast. So I will answer the question I've gotten a lot this week. Are the Wolves interested in Eric Bledsoe? Some other notes when it comes to the Wolves. 
Gophers hockey, Gophers basketball, Gophers football, the Vikings, the Twins, as they search for a new pitching coach. Lots to get to. I will plan on doing a news and notes podcast later this week. So we'll get to John Feinstein in a second. We'll keep the interviews going on episode 104. We'll get to John Feinstein on his new book about the 2016 Ryder Cup. But first, some love for Camp Zero Coolers. Camp-Zero.com. Use the promo code SCOOP. Scoop for $10 off your order. Coolers currently come in white or beige. Here is the motto. Here is why you want Camp Zero Coolers. Why can't reliable, cool-looking products also be affordable? Well, the owners of Camp Zero Coolers asked that very question. They are brothers. They are business partners. They have traveled the world over the last 30 years, developing and sourcing products to make outdoor living easier. The philosophy is simple. You offer ruggedly cool outdoor products that are affordable and, more importantly, designed to withstand the rigors of the outdoors. Whether you are headed to camp, hunt, tailgate, fish, attend a family picnic, whatever it might be, Camp Zero branded products will always have your back. They believe it's time for an affordable quality product that you can count on. Take my word for it. Camp Zero Coolers, the website camp-zero.com. All right, here's my conversation with John Feinstein. Had him in studio earlier in the week doing something TV-wise here in a couple weeks on Channel 5. But this is an opportunity to play the entire 29 minutes we spent talking. Heck, we talked for a while off camera too, but at least the 29 minutes on camera, mostly about his book, the first major, all about the 2016 Ryder Cup at Hazeltine in Chaska, the U.S. beating Europe. But we also talked a little college basketball, Rick Pitino, plus his thoughts on U.S. Bank Stadium as he was at the Vikings-Ravens game. Here is my conversation with best-selling author John Feinstein. Hey guys, this is Manny Hill. And I'm Derek James. We are the Raised by Wolves podcast. You can check us out, of course, at 1500ESPN.com. You can search us on iTunes, and you can check us out, of course, at Podcast One. We talk Timberwolves, we talk music, we'll talk food a little bit once in a while, but uh, mainly talk basketball and, and a little bit of music as well. So check us out. You can find us, of course, iTunes, Podcast One, 1500ESPN.com, the Raised by Wolves podcast. John, considering your passion for writing, your passion for golf, just the way everything played out here last year, I mean, was it easy? I mean, did you know the second you left Minnesota, that Monday, that Tuesday, hey, this has got book written all over it? Oh, no, I knew before that. Okay. uh, Because I had always wanted to write a Ryder Cup book dating back to when I did A Good Walk Spoiled. Uh, I went to the 1993 Ryder Cup, and the, that book actually begins with Davis Love standing in the middle of the 18th fairway at the Belfry, thinking he's going to get physically sick, feeling the pressure, because the, the, the matches had basically come down to he, him versus Costantino Roca. And it, standing there watching that, I thought, someday I have to do a Ryder Cup book. And it took me a long time to get to it. But I knew Hazeltine was going to be the perfect storm, because the U.S. had to win. They'd had the task force, the meltdown at Medina, the embarrassing Watson-Mickelson takedown uh, at Glen Eagles. Uh, Europe was going to have a very young team, uh, six rookies. And so I made the decision really in 2015 uh, to do this book, started doing, interviewing all the players and captains. Fortunately, I knew a lot of the guys well. The great thing with the book is you have time to develop trust. And by the time we got to the matches... I knew I had a great book. I just needed a climax. And it's funny because after the U.S. won, 
I went to congratulate Davis, who has been a friend for 25 years, and I said, hey, congratulations, I'm so happy for you. And he says, gave you a happy ending. And I said, <laughs> I said, Davis, if this isn't a good book, it's going to be my fault, not yours. I mean, it was. It was the gift that kept on giving that week, right? I mean, there was storyline after storyline. I mean, it started, I got here the Sunday before, uh, went and drove all 18 holes with Chandler Withington. We were going to walk, but it was, it was practically hailing that day. And I'm thinking, if the weather's like this next weekend, it's going to be a disaster. But of course, the weather was perfect. But that was the night Arnold Palmer died. And so the week began that way with a lot of emotion on both sides because everybody in golf so loved and respected Arnold Palmer. And then the stuff with Danny Willett and his brother. And then, of course, you had that first day when the U.S. jumps to the 4-0 lead. And it just, as you said, it just kept on going. Patrick Reed's hole out on Saturday. And the Reed-McElroy match was as electric a sporting event I've ever been a part of. I was walking with that match. I knew how critical it was going to be. Rory and Patrick were two of the key players in the book. And it, that eighth hole, when Rory made the putt and was, you know, ready to basically rip off the shirt, and then Patrick makes it on top of him, and they do the fist bump. And the cool moment, Darren, was I was standing on the 11th tee, and Rory's one of the really good guys I've ever met in sports. I've heard that, yeah. He really is. Very bright and great sense of humor. And he walks over to me, and he puts his hand on my arm, and he goes, how cool is this? He got it. He got it. That forget about who's going to win, who's going to lose. This moment we were all in, in one form or another, was just very, very cool. And that's, the, that's why I called the book the first major, because I really believe the Ryder Cup's the best event in golf. I just, there's nothing like it. It's unique. And uh, I love it, and I'm really glad I got to do the book. I mean, there's a bias with you being the golf guy, but, I mean, you can make a case the Ryder Cup is the best spectacle in sports. It's right up there. I mean, I've, I've been to all the major sporting events. I've had been lucky enough to do that. And as I said... Other than when I did a book in 1995 called The Civil War that was about the Army-Navy football rivalry. And that was a game that climaxed with Army driving 99 yards to win 14-13 and save their coach's job while they were at it. And I remember being totally drained after that game because I didn't want either team to lose because I'd gotten so close to the players on both teams. I think, by the way, I'm the one person who isn't a president of the United States who's been in both the Army and Navy locker rooms during an Army-Navy game. Yeah. I think that's. I think I have that distinction. I would think you do. Yeah. But, uh, but I was drained after that, that game, and I was completely drained in a similar way after this Ryder Cup because I, I wanted the Americans to win. I'm an American. But I like the European guys so much, and they've been so good to me and so cooperative. You, you couldn't root against them. You could root for the Americans. I would never root against Rory McIlroy, but I was sure glad when the U.S. won. Now, on Rory, correct me if I'm wrong, did he almost get into it with a fan? Yes, I was there, actually. It was on Saturday afternoon. He was walking from 6 green to 7 tee, and there was this one fan. I was not that far behind him, but there was this one fan who had a beer in each hand. Jordan Spieth, Shocking. Well, Jordan Spieth called them the one percenters, and I thought it was a good description because 99% of the fans out there were great. I mean, they really were. They were loving the whole experience. But, you know, there's always going to be a small group has too much to drink. As Rory said, if I started drinking at 7 in the morning, by 2 in the afternoon, I probably That's wouldn't right. be in great shape either. Yes. But um, Rory's, and this guy has a beer in each hand, and he's screaming a real profanity at Rory about something he wanted Rory to do to him. And Rory told me later that usually he can walk right by that. 
and and he's played in enough Ryder Cups now, he's played in the last four, that he understands that when the Americans are in Europe, they're going to hear it, and when the Europeans are here, they're going to hear it. But he said he happened to look the guy right in the eye at that moment as he was going by, and the guy was really, really bad, really drunk, really bad, and he said, he, tur I, he turned around to security and said, get this guy out of here. And he said the reason he did it was he was afraid if he didn't, he might go over the rope after the guy. Oh. And that wouldn't have been good no. for anybody. No, I don't think so. <laughs> All right, as good as, as, good as the McElroy-Reed match was on Saturday, what about Mickelson-Garcia on Sunday? It's funny, that match almost got overlooked. They both exactly. shot 63, 19 birdies, one bogey. Phil made the one bogey. Um, he had 10 birdies. Sergio had nine. Um, and it, it's funny because they don't like each other. Sergio and Phil. People talk about Sergio and Tiger. Sergio and Phil, not buddies. And uh, so it's very quiet out there between the two of them, as opposed to Reed and McElroy. Uh, and, and interestingly, when I talked to them afterwards, neither one wanted to acknowledge that it was the best match they'd ever played in. Well, it was really good, but neither well, you both shot 63. And Sergio, I think, was a little more honest about it. He said, maybe if I'd won, I would have felt that way. But remember, he made a 15-footer to have the match. Mm -hmm. But also because by the time that match came around, the U.S. had pretty much taken control. Exactly. McElroy-Reed was the match that Europe had to win to have even a chance because they were three points behind starting Sunday. How polarizing is Phil? I mean, you're saying that Sergio and Phil don't get along. I mean... He, what would you say? He's always been a polarized. He's always been very popular among the fans. I mean, Phil's great in terms of signing autographs for people and acknowledging people. He's really good publicly. In fact, the, one of his nicknames in the locker room has always been Eddie Haskell. Remember the old Leave it to Beaver character? Sure. Hello, Mr. Cleaver. Hello, Mrs. Cleaver. Come on, Wally, let's go get in trouble. That, a little, Phil's got a little bit of that in him. Um, but but I, he's certainly become more popular among the American players as he's gotten older. Zach Johnson calls him our Papa Bear. And he's the guy who kind of takes younger guys under his wing, plays money matches with him on Tuesday partly to help him prepare for the Ryder Cup. Uh, but you're right. It, on, on the European side, he's certainly respected, but probably not at the top of the dinner list. Jordan Spieth's the guy they all say. Rory said to me, you know, when I first started hearing about Jordan and heard what a great guy he was, how mature he was, what a good player, I said, nah, he's too good to be true. Nobody's this That's good. That's what I would say. And I said the exact same thing. Uh, it's funny you but say that. But he's completely genuine. Totally. He's as good a human being as Absolutely. we all think he is. The funny thing is, Rory said, you know, I went and played with him. A I played with him a couple times, and I said, Jesus, this is who he is. And I was just like you. My attitude was, he can't be this good a guy. This is an image. He's smart enough to, you know, the way Phil uh, played to his image a, a lot when he was younger. And then I sat down with him, and it's, it's funny, um, because obviously he was in huge demand after the year he had in 2015, and this is when I was starting the book. And when I first approached him, Barely knew him. He'd only been on tour for a couple of years. I certainly talked to him, but I told him what I was doing, and I said, I know how busy you are. He said, don't worry. I'll make the time. Twice, he had to postpone, legit reasons. So finally, we sit down to do the first interview, and uh, I said, he says to me, hey, I'm really sorry we had to postpone those two times. I said, Jordan, you're doing me a favor giving me this time, so don't apologize. And he said, well, aren't you doing me a favor putting me in your book? I mean, he needs to be in, in my book like I need to gain 20 pounds. But, but, but we sat for two hours, and it was funny because his agent has a reputation for being a little bit difficult to deal with. And he was fine with me. But he said at the end of the interview, I said, you know, I'm going to want to circle back again and talk again. And he said, just take my cell number so you don't have That's to deal great. with Jay. I mean, you can't ask for more than that. Now, were all the guys... Pretty open, yeah. pretty receptive to when yeah. you said, hey, I need some time? Mm, yeah, again, the, the beauty of a book is you have time uh, to 
um, to, 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 you know, if a guy has to postpone, it's mm-hmm. okay. It's not like you're on a newspaper deadline. And I knew a lot of the guys, certainly the older guys. I, fortunately, I knew both captains well. I'd known Davis forever. I knew Darren Clark very well. Uh, he was terrific. Very funny guy. Um, and the, guy, the younger guys who I didn't know as well, this is where TV kind of helped me because at least they knew me from Golf Channel. So they thought I was legit. And once we sat down and, like with Jordan, developed some trust, it, it went well. And the best thing was... I wanted this book to read as if I was in the team rooms. You know, the way I did with Season on the Brink, where I was in the locker room with Bob Knight. I wanted to read as if I was there. And the guys, after the matches were over, gave me the kind of time and the kind of detail about what happened in the team rooms that allowed me to do that. I mean, a great example is I I asked guys, what what was your fondest memory on both teams of what happened in the team rooms? to a man almost, the American said it was Jordan standing up Thursday night to say how good he thought this team was and to say, let's not try to get 14 and a half points. Let's try to get 28. We're good enough to win every match. All due respect to the Europeans. I think we're better than they are. And all the guys, he's 23 years old. He's the kid on the team. He was still the second youngest guy on the team, but he was taking a leadership role. And Mickelson and Love had both urged him to do that. And both said that was the moment when they said, we're going to go out there and kick their butt. And, of course, the next morning the U.S. went out and jumped to that 4 nothing lead. And the Europeans were great talking about Sunday night and dealing with the loss and going to the American team room and Rory telling stories about doing shots with Sibby Kucher and that she basically drank him under the table. And the final scene in the book, it's interesting because the final scene in the book is on the European side, not on the American side, because there was a great moment at about four o'clock in the morning over at the Sheraton Bloomington that as I was writing it, describing what the guys had told me, I got kind of choked up. It was, it was that cool. I mean, were they humble in defeat? Yes, absolutely. They said we got beat by a better team, you know, and, and it, they're playing a little bit with house money when you've won eight out of ten and six out of seven, uh, and they knew they had six rookies. They, they still desperately wanted to win. I mean, you saw them out there. You saw Rory. You saw uh, all, all the, the guys on the team and how badly they wanted to win. I mean, even Henrik Stenson got kind of emotional at times, and he's a funny guy, by the way. Um, but they, they understood that the Americans earned it. Roy told me that he went back and watched the entire day Sunday's play, painful as it was at times. And he said as he sat there and watched it, he thought to himself, they did to us what we've done to them in the past. They made every clutch putt. They didn't back down when things got tight. They deserved to win. And he said, can't wait to get to Paris in 2018. <laughs> What about access to Vice Captain Tiger Woods? Um, it was about as good as the access, say, to the White House, except maybe not quite as good. Um, but but it, it worked out fine. I mean, Tiger has, Tiger has virtually done virtually no one-on-one well, exactly. interviews in his yeah. career. I'm one of the few guys who ever sat down with him at length. 1998, we actually went to dinner. And I spent about four hours with him. And it was still one of the most fascinating evenings I've ever had. But... What helped me here was all the other guys talking about Tiger and how involved he was. I mean, Davis talked about that a lot. Oh, Tiger's into it. And you think, oh, that's a bunch of baloney. Tiger's too busy with Tiger. But even Mickelson said that he could sense Tiger really wanting to be part of a winning Ryder Cup team because he'd only been part of one. 1999 was the only time he was part of a winning Ryder Cup team. And I I don't want to give the whole book away. 
but there is a story that Brant Snedeker and Matt Kuchar um, and Patrick Reed told me about Sunday night in the team room when Tiger, they, 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 they were Tiger's guys because the, the assistant captains each had four guys. Um, and Tiger called them over and told them a story about something that happened to him in 1999 involving Payne Stewart, who died six weeks after that 99 Ryder Cup. And again, it was a side of Tiger that I had never seen or heard about. So there is quite a bit of Tiger in the book, even though the next time he and I talk, it'll be the first time in a while, let's put it that way. On Patrick Reed, you brought up his name a few times. Mm-hmm. I think if I went to my wife or maybe a, a different casual golf fan, he's not that household name. No, he's not, because he hasn't won a major, for one thing. Exactly. Uh, but, I mean, is it the way he's wired? I mean, he was the fan favorite that week. Well, he was Captain America. And, and it started a little bit at Glen Eagles because he played so well. Uh, and it also sort of changed his relationship with the other guys on the team. Uh, he's a loner. I mean, he'll tell you that, that he's a guy who uh, goes out on the range, puts it in his earbuds, listens to the same song over and over and over again all year. One song. Um, his wife uh, works with him closely. She's technically his swing coach, so she can go on the range. Um, so he's not close to a lot of the guys. But at 14, uh, at Glen Eagles, he remembered Phil Mickelson on Saturday night when they all get together. And Phil Mickelson was talking about each guy on the team. And he said to Patrick Reed, we need to know you better. You need to be more a part of us, the way Tiger Woods wasn't for years. And he said he, he took that to heart. He became close to Bubba Watson, who ended up being a vice captain. Um, and, of course, he and Jordan are friends, even though you'll never meet two more different guys. Uh, you remember when, when Patrick holed out? on the sixth hole on Saturday afternoon, one of the key moments in the weekend. And he and Jordan went over. They couldn't decide whether high five, low five, chest five. And they ended up doing kind of a mid five. And Reed hit him so hard, Jordan hurt his wrist. He said he had a stinger in his hand. He couldn't grip the club on the next tee. He was fine a few holes later. But so they're very different. Uh, but but they, they play off each other perfectly. And uh, I, I, Patrick loves the Ryder Cup because he, he you know, he's, he played in something called a Junior Ryder Cup. Not the Junior Ryder Cup that now exists, but something in Texas where he was growing up. So he grew up with a feel for that sort of team thing. He was a very good college player, team matches again at Augusta State. So he loves this event. And, uh, and I think most of American golf fans love him now because of what happened at Hazeltine. I'm Bubba. How long did it take for him to accept, okay, I'm not on the team. Mm-hmm. I can still help out, mm-hmm. but I'm not helping out as a player. It was Bubba's idea. Uh, it, the last spot um, came down to Ryan Moore or Bubba. And, of course, Bubba had the experience, and he would have been a perfect partner for J.B. Holmes because they can both hit the ball off the planet, and Davis had thought about all of that. Uh, but Ryan Moore played so well, losing the playoff in Atlanta in the Tour Championship, to Rory that that last pick that Davis made on Sunday night that was supposed to be big fanfare on NBC during the football game but wasn't because of Arnold Palmer's death but Ryan Moore played so well he couldn't leave him off the team and when Davis had to make the call to Bubba to tell him Bubba said after Bubba said I get it I understand he said I'd still like to come and there was one vice captain spot open the U.S. both teams could use up to five and Davis only had four at that moment and Davis said, look, if you come, you got to be all in. You can't just show up and hang out. I'm, you're going to work. And Bubba said, give me five minutes to talk to my wife, Angie. Called him back five minutes later and said, if you'll have me, I'm coming. And 
Brant Snedeker will tell you that part of the reason he won his singles match on Sunday was because Bubba was the vice captain walking around with him and kept him up. He was two down early and came back and won on 17. So Bubba did a good job of adjusting. And you might remember this. The guy crying the hardest when the U.S. won was Bubba. He, in fact, Davis said... Emotional that, from the start. Yeah, he's, that, he, still, he's yeah, a crybaby. It's a good reminder. But, yeah. but, but Davis said that Bubba came over and was just weeping on his shoulder, and his son Drew, was Davis's son Drew, was standing there waiting for a hug. And after a while, Drew realized this was going to take a while, so he went off to find somebody else to hug. Team chemistry, team camaraderie. I mean, I never quite know how to quantify. I mean, does winning then equal good chemistry? Or the other way around. Or the other way around. In this but case. it does seem like in this case. It did. The Americans really enjoyed each other's company. It was real, and, I'll, and it hasn't been in the past. And the way you can tell the difference is ping pong. In pa- at past Ryder Cups, the mm. Americans would come in and say, oh, we're playing ping pong together. We're having a great time. You don't talk to them. Tiger and Phil are teammates. Yeah. And, the, and, oh, it's all so good. There were two ping pong tables in the team room. I was told they were used twice in seven days. So that tells you the guys were enjoying each other's mm-hmm. company. And Matt Kuchar was the court jester, and Phil was the big brother, and Jordan was the young leader, and Snedeker was there giving everybody a hard time. And their Saturday night session, again, I can't go into too much detail, but uh, because of time, if nothing else, we'd be here all day. But it got to the point where so many guys, when each guy got up to talk, it was Kuchar's idea. He wanted each guy to talk about two things in their life they were grateful for. Not health, not family, not friends. Those weren't allowed. And each guy, as they got up to talk, four guys in a row, starting with Snedeker, broke down before they were finished. Stricker broke down before he even stood up, because that's Stricker. But finally, after Snedeker finished, and he's weeping and his wife is weeping, somebody says, can we try the other side of the room? <laughs> <laughs> what about Hazeltine? I mean... Heck, this is as provincial a marketplace as any. We like to say, hey, this was our event. You know, us Minnesotans, this was our event. It was. I mean, How did Hazeltine fold up that entire I, week? I thought it was great. Um, the golf course it played, it didn't play super hard. It would have played harder had it been a PGA championship. Remember, the U.S. captain has a lot of input into how the golf course plays um, and, and, and into the golf course setup. And the Americans wanted wide fairways because they don't drive it as accurately as the Europeans, and they wanted low rough for the same reason. They wanted fast greens because they're better putters than the Europeans, and they wanted accessible pin placements because they think we're better putters, we want shots at birdies. And they did that. And so Hazeltine can play tougher is what I'm saying. But both teams like the golf course. Europeans not thrilled with some of the pin placements, particularly on Sunday. Uh, But the fans were so great. I mean, I'm not saying that because I'm sitting here in Minneapolis. I was there. As Jordan Spieth said, the one percenters were the one percenters, but most of them were just having a great time. They accepted the European fans singing when they had their moments, uh, and the weather was perfect. Uh, I've decided I'm taking credit for that. Actually, everybody it said, was, it, was right, everybody yeah. said yeah. it was Arnold, that Arnold yeah. handled the weather on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, and I think Hazeltine will get another Ryder Cup down the road because it, it, logistically it, it, it worked out well, and everybody was excited about the whole week. Through the course of all your reporting on the book, I mean, heck, all your relationships, all your connections, you had all this knowledge just that week. Mm-hmm. But as you're reporting a month later, two months later, as you're preparing everything for this book, what surprised you? What did you learn that you didn't know that particular week? Well, first of all, that the Americans really did come to get along and like each other. And, and they, they, they still have an email circle 
that they, they're always sending, got, giving each other a hard time or updating people on family stuff. Uh, they got close and they've stayed close. Uh, Tiger Woods' involvement surprised me, his emotional involvement and the time he spent. Davis told me that at 11.53 Saturday night, he got a text from Tiger. He was trying to go to sleep. And his, his, so. yeah, his, his text pinged and he looked and it was Tiger, can't sleep. Lineups are set. Nothing left to think about. I mean, that's how into it he was. That certainly surprised me because Tiger's always been about Tiger. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also, I, I, and I don't want this to come out wrong, but how much I like the Europeans. I didn't know them, generally speaking, other than, say, maybe Justin Rose and Darren Clark and Roy McElroy, as well as I knew the Americans because they don't play over here as much. And a bunch of wonderful guys. And, for, for example, Ian Poulter, who was a vice captain because he was hurt, Wonderful guy. And the Americans fans hate him because he's so damn good in the Ryder Cup. But I, I really enjoyed spending time with them. And, uh, and also, I don't want this to come out wrong, but how emotional I got watching some of those moments on both sides um, because it was so cool and they were so into it. As I said, that McElroy-Reed match was as good as anything I've ever, ever had the chance to see. And I've seen a lot because I'm 112 years old. From all the luminaries that were in town that week, the Michael Jordans, the Bill Murrays, did you track down any of those individuals? Yeah, the, Michael Phelps is, is sort of my Michael guy, Phelps, yeah. uh, Baltimore guy. I live in D.C. I've known him since he was 16, and I'm an old swimmer, believe it or not. In fact, I won a Masters National Championship in, in the 200 medley relay here at the used pool. Really? Yes, in 1999. So one of my great jock moments was right here. Very nice. But uh, Phelps told a great story about uh, how – he had set something up with Snedeker because they, Michael spoke to the team on Tuesday night. And they knew Kuchar was going to pull something because Kuchar won the bronze medal in the golf that summer at, at, the, at the Olympics. So sure enough, Kuchar pulls out his bronze medal and, and uh, puts it around his neck. And he says, you know, M- Michael, maybe you and I can take some questions together since we're the only Olympians here with medals. And Snedeker on cue says, hey, Michael. Where are your bronze medals? Because among his 28, he's got two bronze. And Michael says, I've got no clue. They're bronze medals. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you while I have you sitting here. College basketball, mm-hmm. all your connections in the sport, your passion for the sport. Mm-hmm. I mean, now that the FBI is involved, I mean, I think a lot of us thought for a long time there's some level of corruption. There's some level of cheating. Yeah. But then you bring it to the level of the FBI, and it's like, holy cow. Yeah, it's a funny thing, Darren. I wrote a book four years ago. I write these kids' mysteries now. And uh, my kids are my editors, which is kind of cool. But uh, it was called Foul Trouble. And it was about a, a highly recruited high school kid who was being pushed by shoe company reps, by agents, by money managers, and by AAU coaches to take the money and run before he goes to college. And it, it was basically, people said, well, that was the blueprint for this. How did you know? You know, you were, you were prescient. I said, I wasn't at all prescient. I, know, I knew because it's been happening for years. This isn't new. What's new is the FBI. Mm-hmm. And the FBI has subpoena power, and they can wiretap, and they can threaten to send people to jail. The NCAA has none of that. And that's why this is such a big story. That's why Rick Pitino's out of a job. And that's why I don't think this is the end of it. They're going to flip some of those assistant coaches. We're going to find out more. And I, th- I think this is going to go on for a while. I'm not saying everybody cheats. It's, it, I know there are coaches I know don't cheat. Tom Izzo doesn't cheat. Mike Krzyzewski doesn't cheat. Mike Bray doesn't cheat. And there are many others. John Beeline, you can go on. Um, but there's a lot of it going on. And I think we're going to hear more. 
Are you buying the Rick Pitino? Not for a second. And, yeah. and here's the, here's well, the thing. I detector this. And, yeah, I'm with you. Here's the thing, though, Darren. And here's, here's what I've said to because I have a lot of friends. I, I know Rick Pitino. He's played my charity golf tournament in past years. I like Rick Pitino. I respect the heck out of what his son has done up here at the U. Having said all that, here's what I would say to Rick if we were in the room together. I would say, Rick, if you knew, you should be fired. If you didn't know, you should be fired twice because he's the one making seven figures. He's the one who hired those assistant coaches. He's the one with the relationship with Adidas. Adidas isn't paying Louisville $160 million over the next 10 years because of who the assistant coaches are. So the head coach gets all the credit, and he should, when a team wins. He's got to take the blame and the responsibility when something like this happens. All right, I'll leave you with this. You were at Vikings-Ravens on Sunday at U.S. Bank Stadium. I just woke up. Yeah. The side of the Super Bowl. I mean, did you like what you saw? Was that your first time at U.S. Bank? First Stadium? time at U.S. Bank. Uh, it's it's a wonderful facility. I wish the press box was a little closer to midfield, but that's just me being old and spoiled. Yeah, All the new NFL new, stadiums yeah, exactly. are like that. In fact, Dan Snyder in Washington, uh, when he bought the team, the press box was actually built goal line to goal line. He moved everybody out other than the TV and radio people yeah. who by contract have to be there and put them in the end zone. So that's just the way it is. But it's a great facility. And I, I, I wrote this in the book about the people here in Minneapolis, and I was struck again. I tweeted about this yesterday. What is it about Midwesterners that they're so much nicer than folks like us from the East Coast? I had to ask directions from police officers three different times. One of them got out of his car, walked over, and pointed me, go here, go here, go here. In New York, I would have been arrested for asking the question. I know. I mean, it's it's the cliche, Minnesota nice, but... It's true. It's and true. And it was true it really at Hazeltine. I've I'll lived you, here for 30 years. I'll tell you one true. last quick story. Before First morning, which was the morning after Arnold Palmer died, I had a, a call for Golf Channel at 5 a.m., and I'm driving up US-12, and it's pitch dark, and I'm trying to find the exit. There's a police car pulled over, and I didn't switch to the left lane because I was trying to make sure I got off at the exit. Sure enough, here comes the cop behind me, and he, he comes over to the car, and he says, I'm sorry for stopping you. I didn't see you had out-of-state license plates. You don't know we have this law out here where you got to move to the left lane. That's fantastic. And, and I said, I-, I understand, officer, blah, blah, blah. He said, can I just see your license and registration real quick? Comes back a minute later and apologizes again for stopping me. <laughs> I'd have been in handcuffs on the East Coast. <laughs> That's fantastic. John, thank you so much. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for having me. The one, the only, John Feinstein. I know on, when was it? I guess it would have been Monday night. He had a very successful book signing at Hazeltine. Like three to 400 people showed up Tuesday afternoon at Subtext in St. Paul. He had another book signing into conversation. I know that went well. He's been making the rounds. The book is definitely worth your time. The first major all about the 2016 Ryder Cup. John Feinstein, New York Times best-selling author. Don't forget about Vine Park Brewing, one of the sponsors of the Scoop Podcast, vinepark.com online, Vine Park Brewing on West 7th Street in St. Paul between 35E and downtown St. Paul. They've been around for 22 years. You don't make it 22 years without a good-tasting beer, a great-tasting beer. So good. Think about this weekend. Gophers, Iowa, late afternoon Saturday. You think about early morning Sunday. Do you need to start your Sunday morning early? You're drinking early on Sunday with the Vikings-Browns, 8.30 a.m. kickoff from London. Think about all the great football this weekend, the World Series, the Wolves, the Wild, Gophers hockey, Gophers women's hockey, Gophers volleyball, so much going on. Heck, Gophers men's basketball, they have an open scrimmage, or I guess it's a team event for fans, on Sunday afternoon. So much going on when it comes to the local sports teams. 
So if you need your beer fix, I guess it would be hard to bring beer into Williams Arena, although it's been done before. I can promise it's been done before. But if you're spending some time at home this weekend, you need your beer with all the sports going on, you'll be on your couch, swing into Vine Park Brewing, grab a growler, support one of the sponsors of the Scoop Podcast. For more, go to the website, vinepark.com. A reminder, look for episode 105 later this week. Former NBA coach George Carl should join. Plus, it'll be mostly news and notes, but I was texting with George on Tuesday trying to get him on episode 104. This particular episode, the conversation episode, the interview episode, his schedule didn't allow that, but he said, hey, Thursday works so we can catch up with George. Always like picking his brain on Carmelo Anthony. Is Melo a good fit? With Oklahoma City, he's got a lot of opinions. He's close with Tom Thibodeau, so always enjoy talking with George Carl. So we'll aim to have George on episode 105, plus I'll have news and notes on the Wolves, Gophers men's basketball. I've got a note about Nick Connolly of the Gophers football team. Actually, I tweeted that note out, so you can always check my Twitter feed, DWolfs on KSTP, but I saved some stuff for the podcast for TV for radio. I do not tweet everything out. I'll have an update on the Twins pitching coach search and everything else going on. Also, I will answer this question. Is Tory Hunter a candidate to join Ron Gardenhire's staff with the Tigers? You can find that out on Scoop Podcast episode 105. So look for that later this week. Appreciate you listening to episode 104.